You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And if you're new to the show, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. Even though we are primarily discussing episode seven of the first season, we will be discussing it in the context of the entire first season. So if you have not seen the first 10 episodes, beware that there could be some spoilers ahead for you. And we're talking about parts developed in an unusual manner, which is episode seven of the first season of Orphan Black. Another very aptly named episode following variations uh, under domestication. I, I, yes, I was just about to say that. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> some of the episode titles, I don't quite get the connection entirely, but this one is, is very appropriate. <laughs> and is, as Delphine and Leaky would say, rather cheeky. Indeed, indeed. So I gotta say, this episode is not one of my favorites. I'm not saying it's a bad episode. There is so far no bad episode of Orphan Black, in my opinion. They're all really good episodes. But, this is a very utilitarian episode in the context of the first season. It's a lot of seeing characters learning information that the audience already knows. So it's things that need to happen. We need to see the police making progress on figuring out the weirdness going on with the clones. We need to see the Neolution and Dyad Institute people figuring out that Sarah isn't Beth, et cetera, et cetera. But it just, it makes it a little less exciting for me personally, because there's a lot of, of that going on, like the characters playing catch up to the audience. But I still like how tense everything manages to be, even if it is a utilitarian episode, you know? Oh, yeah. It's still got some good stuff in there. I think especially Helena's storyline really makes this episode stand out. I, I think we learned a lot about Helena in particular in this episode that's very valuable to us as as the audience. Especially since Helena's been out of commission, essentially, for the past couple episodes. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the episode begins with Sarah and Cosima continuing to argue about monitors and whether Cosima should pursue getting closer to Delphine. And I had completely forgotten we were talking about when we were discussing episode six, we were, I was kind of jokingly saying, Oh, Cosima just wants to talk to sleep with, with Delphine. She's using Sarah's arrangement with Paul to excuse her wanting to sleep with Delphine. But she actually basically says that at the beginning of this episode. See, I thought that you were specifically referencing that conversation. No. Wow. <laughs> it had just embedded itself in your brain and you totally yes. forgot where it came from. I did. I did. Because they have this exchange where Kasima's arguing that they need to engage with their with their monitors and Sarah replies, "Yeah, look where that luck got me." And Kasima says, "Into bed with him." <laughs> and so <laughs> seriously, Kasima just totally wants to sleep with Delphine because Delphine's attractive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and she has killer grade. She's she's smart and hot. <laughs> Smart and hot, great hair. Delphine's got it all. But uh, <laughs> but we really see some tension between Sarah and Cosima in this episode over their disagreement about how they should approach their monitors, which I find interesting. Indeed. So we also see in these first, in, toward the beginning of the episode, that Sarah hasn't really come to trust Paul fully like he, she's not sure if Paul is on their side or whether he's you know selling them out to Olivier in their meeting or if and we also see her lie to him because he he asks her about whether she knows that the clones are being killed if she knows any other clones and she just she says no she's only met Allison and she doesn't know about she doesn't mention about Helena so clearly Sarah isn't totally sure 
if she trusts Paul fully yet. Right. She doesn't mention Helena or Cosima. And it is one of those things, I mean, I guess Helena in particular, I don't know why she doesn't tell him. Cosima, I get. I mean, because that's one of those things you don't necessarily want to screw over your friend by potentially selling her out. Especially since Sarah, I think at this point, realizes she doesn't know what Cosima's doing. <laughs> I guess it's later in the episode, though. But yeah, I, I do think that it makes sense for Sarah to not trust Paul at this point. As you had mentioned last episode, he was about to kill her with with the uh, pills in the booze. And I think Sarah's savvy enough to recognize that Paul is under somebody else's thumb, you know? So I think I think Sarah's astute enough to know that it's not safe, so to speak, to trust Paul yet. I, I do get the sense from Paul as well that he is not fully trusting Sarah either, because he's, you know, he's questioning her about knowing about other clones, and he he really doesn't seem to fully accept the answers that she gives him. Mm-hmm. You know, which he's wise to do because she's lying. And, <laughs> right. and and we also, I think, later in the episode, get a sense that he's not fully sure about her when Olivier mentions that somebody's killing the other subjects. It's a, it's somebody who looks exactly like Beth. She's from Europe. And Paul's like, where from in Europe? Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's also a sense of him trying to ferret out information of how much they know in regards to Sarah. But there's also, to me, a sense there of, well, maybe she might be the one who's killing the clones. So I, I think Paul, I think we see from the, Paul that he really wants to trust Sarah, but he's not quite there yet, through most of this episode anyway. Right. And I think that's, you know, as I think I mentioned in the last episode, Paul and Sarah are both very, very cagey about everything. Like, they're not ones to necessarily trust anything at face value. Yes, I agree. I do find it interesting that after Paul has come back from his first meeting with Olivier and Sarah says he wants she wants to go see Kira, Paul tells her to take his car. And we saw in the previous episode that Paul had put a tracker on Beth's car. Or maybe Paul didn't. Maybe maybe the the larger experiment did. I don't know. And so I kind of wonder if that's an act of Paul being protective of Sarah. If he, if maybe the tracker was installed by Olivier and the the larger organization, and they can also track Sarah through through it as well. Do you have any thoughts about that? I, I certainly think that's what the implication is. Although, then I'm I'm so paranoid that I'm like, well, why does Paul think that they're not tracking him too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, from what he says in this episode, it doesn't seem to me like he's revealed to. Sarah, at this point, that there's a tracker on Beth's car. And I don't think we ever see on screen him mention that to her, nor does it ever seem to me like she really becomes aware of that. So I kind of do wonder why Paul keeps that in his back pocket, even though by the end of this episode, it does seem like he's really come to trust Sarah a lot more. Yeah, although, I mean, the fact that any of this happened in the first place, the offer to take his car... I'd be surprised if Sarah hasn't sussed out that that's the reason why. Not that that excuses Paul for not telling her, but I feel like Sarah would figure that out. But I do think maybe Paul offering 
to let Sarah take his car or telling Sarah to take his car is a sign that he's trying to trust her more, that he wants to trust her. Because if he was very concerned that she would split town on him at this point, why wouldn't he want her in Beth's car that had the tracker on it? I suppose so. I think there's also this layer of Paul really, really knowing that he can't trust the Neolutionists since they're Mm -hmm. blackmailing him. Right. So I think he probably to some extent feels a kinship with Sarah, you know, over that fact. Mm -hmm. A mutual distrust. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. Exactly. I do think by the end of this episode, we for sure see a big leap in the relationship between Paul and Sarah. He really even though we see evidence that maybe he doesn't fully trust her throughout the episode, he still takes a big risk and risks himself and tells Sarah to run when, you know, when he's, when he pretends to call Beth for, for Olivier's sake. Mm-hmm. I also like that, that moment when he calls, cause he calls her Beth immediately. And then we cut to Sarah and you can see her face, you know, you can see her go on alert. Like, oh, something's up. Right. And she switches to using her Canadian accent rather than her normal British accent. Right. So, so she's, they, she's smart, Sarah, and, and gets that there's something going on in that moment. Yep. And we also see the emergence of what we like to call smooshy mooshy house cat Paul. Um, when, <laughs> when Sarah shows up to try to save him from, from Olivier. He does this thing where he puts his head against her. <laughs> and it's just kind of funny to me. Like, I was talking to somebody about it the other day, and they're like, oh, I think it's kind of sweet. He's kind of like a, a puppy dog in that moment. And he's, you know, just relieved to have an ally there. And it's like, okay, I, I can see that. But to me, it just is a little strange. Did you then tell that person that we call him Smooshy Mooshy Housecat Paul? I don't remember. I think I was started to, but then the conversation took a turn and I didn't get a chance. Okay. Just wondering. So do you find that moment odd, too, where he puts his head against her? I think I did. It it is one of those things that, with further context of the following episode especially, like, you can kind of see it more as as a sweet moment. But at the time, I was just kind of like, that's kind of weird that he's, you know, because he... As as you were calling him last episode, he was all Terminator Paul. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he's like nuzzling his head into Sarah. <laughs> it seems a little incongruous at the time. Yeah. Or the, the first viewing, rather. Right, right. But I mean, I guess her showing up and trying to help him was a big sign that she really cared about him. And, you know, he was... He's basically just learned recently that she's been playing a big con on him and not really sure if, if he can trust her. And yet he's, she still shows up and tries to help him. So I, we, we saw signs that Paul was really falling for Sarah back when he thought she was Beth. And perhaps this is just the, the place where it really spills over and he realizes, oh, she really does care about me. Right. And as much as we talk about Sarah finding allies, I think – in that context, Paul is probably more isolated than Sarah is, so it, it maybe does mean even more to Paul to find an ally in Sarah, since he's been dealing with these people who are blackmailing him 
Because we don't really ever see him talk to anybody else. I mean, there's the story about him staying with Cody, which we don't actually ever see Cody. So Cody may or may not actually exist. Mm -hmm. Because that's how my brain works on shows like these. (laughs) If we don't see it, it may not be real. And even if we do see it, it may not be what we think it is. (laughs) Yeah. It still may not be real. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like even if Paul did have friends, he probably is not able to talk about this part of his life. Exactly. By the way, buddy, I'm being blackmailed by a suspicious organization that's paying me to be the boyfriend of this woman over here, and I'm supposed to watch her. You know, it's not exactly (laughs) something that just flows into conversation. So I think for sure, Paul is just as isolated, if not more so, than Sarah has been, or than Sarah was at the beginning of the series. Right. So at the end of the episode, we see Paul, you know, very plaintively with his smooshy mushy house cat eyes, take Sarah's hand and their smoochies and then probably more as we as we learned in the at the beginning of the next episode and i got to say i still don't quite understand the connection between Sarah and Paul like at this point i can kind of get where Paul is coming from like i just mentioned Sarah just made this big gesture in regards to her protectiveness about him but I don't quite understand what Sarah sees in Paul. So I'm I'm guessing maybe Felix is right. She doesn't want to break up with Big Dick Paul. <laughs> what, what is what is your sense about what Sarah might see in Paul and why she pursues a relationship with him? Uh, while I'm not totally sure, obviously, I do think the thing we talked about last episode where, you know, Sarah is confronting Vic at Allison's house. Mm-hmm. And Paul comes in and immediately defends Sarah against Vic. Mm -hmm. And so I think perhaps that's kind of appealing to Sarah, at least partially. I mean, here's somebody who, (laughs) he is violent, but he's violent in a protective way, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, because, again, the fact that there's the implication that Sarah and Vic had sort of an abusive relationship and you know Vic's a mess basically the entire series and oh Vic <laughs> and and Paul's not not that way at least so you know and and again the fact that Sarah was with Vic at all Sarah may not make the best romantic decisions it's true it's true but and, I, and I'm not saying that this is coming out of nowhere. We saw in the previous episode, Sarah initiated a sexual encounter with Paul for no other reason besides the fact that it seems like she wanted to have sex, which is fine. But I, I personally just don't quite understand what she sees in him. And maybe he's just really good in bed and that's fine. But that's kind of all I've got at the moment in regards to the connection between the two of them. So if listeners have any other ideas of of moments you feel like demonstrate what, what Sarah sees in Paul, I would I would love to hear your thoughts. Well but again, he did just defend her in this episode. Like he he made a That's true. I mean, you were talking about Sarah making the gesture to come rescue him, but he made the gesture of potentially sacrificing himself so she could escape. That's true. I actually kind of like that in this, because again, my whole thing about how they seem really well matched, Mm -hmm. you know, they've got similar qualities and and all that sort of thing. And, And here we have that really well laid out that he makes the gesture, you save yourself. And I mean, we see him, he goes after Olivier and then gets the needle to the neck. So 
It's true. He does he does make a a gesture in this episode and, and risks his own safety to help her. But we saw inklings of Sarah being interested in him prior to that, which I don't fully understand. So I'm i I've still got questions. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> then I'm going back to my previous argument about about being a relatively decent seeming guy. Again, we're comparing with Vic here, so it's it's not hard for it to be a step up from that. <laughs> so probably the the one of the bigger plots of this episode involves Olivier and seeing Club Neolution. And I, I like that. I think it's a really nice moment for Felix in this episode where he volunteers to go into the club because Sarah is so recognizable. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my favorite parts of that is that he he pulls out his makeup bag and says, Clubland is my world. And and I like the fact that Sarah says, do you just carry that around with you? And, Maybe. And Felix, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, it's the whole cartoon thing where somebody just pulls something out from behind their back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I like that they acknowledge it. <laughs> So often it's not acknowledged. <laughs> and I and I like the idea that he has like emergency black eyeliner with him at all times. I totally believe that he would. I do too. I do too. And I th- wasn't he wearing a coat when he was out in the car? Yes. So the little bag of makeup could have been in there. No, I know. Okay. But yes, I, I do like that they point out that it's... It's maybe uh, pushing the the boundaries of belief that he would just have that with him. But at the same time, it's Felix. I could totally buy that he would totally have that with him all the time. (laughs) Right. I also really love Felix dancing in this episode. I think that that's a a fan favorite moment to see him dancing out on the club floor. So he's dancing very distinctly. And that came from actually Graham Manson suggesting that Jordan Gavaris watching the movie Quadrophenia and, and seeing how Sting dances in that movie. And, and that is the inspiration for how Felix is dancing in that moment. Yes, I believe they said that the the point of it was that he was dancing to be seen. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, you can kind of see in, in Felix's face. Like, he's not really paying any attention to anybody directly around him. He's, like, scoping out Club Neolution. Right. Right, he's dancing by himself. <laughs> That's a Robin reference. Anyway, and and yeah, definitely he's just sort of dancing for the sake of dancing so he can be a spy and, and keep his eye out for Paul and such. And yes, that whole sequence of being introduced to Club Neolution and, oh, there's an ism. There's also Neolution-ism. That whole sequence is, is kind of interesting. And um, before, we got an email from Keltis, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name just now, pointing out that in this episode, Felix walks in and says, you know, I've come all the way from Brixton to party at Club Neolution before I die. And so Astrid responds, you're dying, you must not have heard of Neolutionism. And so in our episode that we had with Sally about cloning, Sally sort of throws out there the possibility that the cloning experiment is to essentially try and gain immortality. And so this sort of supports that that theory. Yes, absolutely. I think we learn quite a bit about neolutionism in this episode, this idea that an ultimate goal is for people not to die. And we, you know, we obviously we see Olivier's elaborate body modification. 
and I think this gives us sort of hints into what the cloning experiment might be about, including the idea that they are trying to create clones that live forever or, you know, at, at least eliminate a lot of diseases, lengthen the lifespan, that sort of thing. Again, this is all speculation, but I think there is evidence in the show to at least support some of that. Absolutely. But yeah, and it's it's interesting watching, especially the initial scene with Astrid leading Felix through the club, because we see we see some branding going on and stuff. They and we see later somebody has the Neolution symbol, the the eye with the power symbol. We see somebody with that branded onto their wrist or forearm or something. So we also in this episode get spend a lot of time with Olivier who we had only seen briefly prior to this. And I gotta say, Olivier is really creepy. He really, really is. And, you know, adding to the creepiness, basically he's sort of fetishized the clones and or genetic experimentation. But we see the whole thing where Sarah walks in and he he makes these really creepy, gross comments to her and offers to show her his tail. Yes, it's it's very much this disturbing come on and it's it's really creepy. Really creepy. Yes, extremely extremely creepy. And I kind of feel sorry for this actor, David Richmond Peck, cuz he he only seems to play jerks. <laughs> I mean, granted, I haven't seen him in that many roles, but the 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 roles that I've seen him in, he he plays real creepy jerk faces. So I, I'm hoping that maybe he has some other parts where he gets to play nicer people. But maybe he likes playing jerks. I don't know. I would say he was sort of neutral on Lost Girl, though. Well, that's true. So yes, we finally get some Sarah character development with the I told you to run, yeah, I don't do run exchange. Which, of course, up until this point, yes, we've seen her finally stay still. But I think this is the first time it's really expressed that, or or where Sarah herself expresses that she's not, not going to run. Agreed. And and this storyline really allows us to see how far Sarah has come since the beginning of the series, both with her comment, yeah, I don't do run. And we get to see how, just how protective she is of the other clones now, both with her not telling Paul at the beginning of the episode and then when Helena is demanding that Sarah give her a name of one of the sheep, Sarah gives her her own name. She sacrifices herself rather than give up Kasiba or Allison. Of course, I do actually think that's probably smart on Sarah's part, given that Helena has faced her a few times now and and has basically said that she doesn't want to kill her. I agree. But at the same time... If Sarah had given up one of the other names, maybe Helena would leave her alone. And maybe old Sarah might have done that so that this person who is kind of bothering her might turn her focus somewhere else. But we see this Sarah not not willing to do that, being very protective of, of the other clones. And we see her also be very protective of Paul in this episode where he where she comes to rescue him. Right. Oh, I agree. Twice, I just twice even she she tries to show up at the beginning of the episode when he's when she's worried, and then later on when he's actually in danger. True. So I thought that it was very clever of Sarah to think about sicking Helena on Olivier, essentially, and I thought it was very astute of her, 
she probably didn't even know she was doing it, but we, when she calls Helena about Olivier, she offers the name and Helena says, you know, that is not the name of a sheep. And Sarah says, no, but it's the name of a shepherd. And Sarah would have no way of knowing this, but, you know, early in the episode, we see Tomas telling her that the way to the shepherd is through the sheep. And at the time when I heard that, I was thinking perhaps he was talking about Jesus because Jesus is, is called a shepherd. That is a, a metaphor that's often used. But maybe he was talking about higher up figures in the clone organization. But, but either, in either case, I, Sarah accidentally latches onto a metaphor that really works for Helena that really makes her interested in what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Of course, now I'm thinking about the whole thing. Like, it's like that episode of X-Files, and I can't remember the name of it now. There, there's the episode of X-Files where there's the cult that has the viewpoint that the path to God is through via negativa. That's it. Is through darkness. Basically, I don't think I've seen that episode, so oh, okay. I cannot comment. Um, I want to say it's like an eighth or ninth season. Yeah, episode. that's why I've only watched up through like season five or something or so. Ah, that's actually like it's a super freaky episode, but it's good. <laughs> anyway, you know, a- again, we sort of are seeing how twisted this mentality is that they've been forcing on Helena, you know, because they're calling them sheep. But the whole point is that, oh, no, you have to slaughter them all, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much a a twist on how the sheep language would normally be used in Christianity. Usually we would, you know, Christians would refer to themselves as sheep because Jesus is a, a shepherd figure. But we see in this case, them using that metaphor to talk about the clones and it's a very much the sheep are bad the sheep sheep need to be executed so it's it's a very dark take on a metaphor that's uh, often used in christianity but yeah so sarah has this idea to somehow loop helena in to this mess that's going on at club neolution and i like what she what she says she uh, i think she's she's talking to felix i think so yeah, she's talking to Felix about how she's going to handle this situation. And what she says about it is, I have a worse idea in, in regards to bringing Helena into the mix. And that's very much an echo of what Sarah says in episode four, Effects of External Conditions, when she comes up with, when she comes up with the idea of asking Allison to pretend to be her to go and visit Kira. And so I don't know. It's, it seems to be. A common theme with, with Sarah's like, this is a terrible idea, but it ends up working out. <laughs> I do like that we sort of see Sarah being sort of a chess master for, for lack of a better metaphor. <laughs> Her role is very much to sort of see what is going on and to try and position everybody in the right place, especially in this episode. I think we see a lot of that, that, you know, oh, I've got these separate problems how can i how can i direct one of my problems at the other problem mm-hmm. <laughs> granted i'm still going to have to deal with that problem later but actually having it work out this way might even help me with that problem right and we saw hints of this in the beginning like when she uses beth's death to try to get rid of vic you know she has this this she has 
taken over Beth's identity in, in a way, and she has this lingering problem with Vic, and she figures out a way to combine the two situations to try to get rid of Vic. So, but this is, I think, a much more elaborate, kind of elegant, not maybe not elegant, but like delicate thing that she has to orchestrate in this episode is with all of these moving pieces. Mm-hmm. Sarah so, is a super genius, is what we're saying. <laughs> yes. And I got to admit, when every time when I see this episode, even though I saw it coming, I see it coming now, when Olivier pulls the hood off of who he thinks is Sarah's head, and we see that it's Helena, I'm instantly terrified and very concerned for Olivier. <laughs> I giggle with glee because <laughs> finally that creep is going to get what he deserves. <laughs> It's true. He's a creep and he has, you know, not not good things coming to him. But at the same time, uh, Helena is just so unstable to me. I, I just I worry for what she's going to do because I, I don't want to see Olivia killed necessarily. But I, I think he gets he gets a good comeuppance when she takes away his tail. Indeed. I actually I, I love that imagery, too, of him pulling off the hood and like all that blonde hair just spills mm-hmm. out everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. I love it. And then, I want to see your tail. <laughs> Did you lie with a beast? <laughs> oh, golly. It's it's unhealthy how much I love Helena. <laughs> I'm a little concerned about myself. I usually, as, as we've talked about before, I usually don't love that kind of character, but I am super fond of Helena. And that was probably the easiest clone doubling scene they've ever shot since Sarah has the hood over her head the entire time. It's like, oh, this is super easy (laughs) to have two clones in one place, but not have to do any effects. (laughs) Indeed it is. So speaking of Helena, I feel like this is the episode that really cements her kind of vulnerable, more human side for me. Mm -hmm. We really get to see her interact with Tomas and we get a real sense of the brainwashing that she's that she's been subjected to. We had Kasima suggest that this is what had happened to her in an earlier episode, but here we actually get to see it in action. Right. And I mean there's that whole sequence of of Tomas talking about the other clones and as we talked about before he refers to them as sheep and he refers to Sarah as it very frequently, like he consistently calls Sarah, it, it's nothing, just one of your fingernail clippings like the rest of them. It will say anything to justify itself. It's all meant to dehumanize the other clones and sort of cement in Helena's mind that she is the only one worthy of existence, I guess. Mm-hmm. And we see the suggestions of the abusive relationship between Tomas and Helena, even though there's not clear violence in this episode or not as bad as we see in the subsequent episode, there's still the suggestion of like violence followed by affection because he, he, he hits, I think it's a cup that she's drinking out of, but like he hits something away from her hand and then hugs her. And I think when I was watching this episode, I was watching it on my laptop and I was wearing headphones this time. And when Tomas takes her hand at the beginning of the episode, do we hear her bones cracking from his grip? I don't know. I'm going to have to go back and check now. Yeah, I think we do. So again, this suggestion, it's, it should be a, a sign of like an, an affectionate thing that he's doing by taking her hand when she's not feeling well. But it sounds like he's gripping her hand so tightly that her bones are popping. Ick. 
and also yeah. we see, you know, we've seen Helena's wings on her back. But in this episode, we see him hand her a razor blade and walk away. So, it, I mean, the implication being that he's encouraging the behavior and, and has perhaps encouraged it to begin. We don't actually know. But, mm-hmm. but of course, I mean, where else would Helena have necessarily gotten razor blades before, if not from Tomas? So it's upsetting. It's very upsetting. Tomas is upsetting. But despite the brainwashing that we see from Tomas, Helena still really wants to make this connection with Sarah. She pretends to kind of go along to fall in line in regards to what he's saying. But then we see her go and suggest, let's have lunch to <laughs> to Sarah as if Helena was a normal person who had lunches with people. It's this strangely endearing moment. Oh, Helena. You're right. I mean, this episode is really the one where... I think we're allowed to identify in any way with Helena or in any real significant way. But she does have that line to when they go to lunch, she says, I dreamed that we were friends. And I mean, there's this real sense of, I guess, longing from Helena in this episode. Um, I think we maybe saw a little bit of it before, although we weren't necessarily sure if that's what it was, where she was, you know, mumbling to herself about I'm not Beth and all this sort of thing. But I think there's really a longing for connection, perhaps, in this episode. Definitely. This idea that she dreamed we were friends, it kind of suggests that maybe she's never had a real friend. And we see her make these awkward attempts to reach out to Sarah in this episode. So yeah, I I definitely think we... It's kind of hard to say because it's not like this this series is... There's no narration. There's no clear. The the show is kind of from the viewpoint of somebody in particular. But I feel like the scenes we we've seen of Helena prior to this were kind of from Sarah's perspective. Helena's presented as very much a a, a menace and a, and a uh, an unknown potential threat. We get a little more sense of her vulnerability in episode four, where we see or where. where Sarah goes to Maggie Chen's apartment and they have their confrontation. But even in that moment, we still are viewing Helena as a threat because we see Sarah being so guarded against her. But I feel like in this episode, we finally get a a chance to interact with Helena and she's just kind of being herself. We get to see her be kind of a victim to Tomas's manipulation. So again, I, I, I just feel like this episode, we finally get to see Helena through Helena's eyes more than through Sarah's eyes. Right. And we talked about that last episode, that really the first half of the season is told almost entirely through Sarah's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so starting with episode six, we really get to see the worlds of the other clones without Sarah being there. Right. And yeah, we do have those moments, as we sort of talked about, the, the moments of Helena being sort of normal and cute and endearing and, you know, let's have lunch. And then the next time we see her, she's chowing down on jello and it's like, oh, look, a a sugar dispenser. And she pours sugar on her jello and then makes that face of like, I've made a huge mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And there's so much eating, so much of Helena eating in this episode. That's pretty funny. Because it looks like almost all of the plates in front of her on that table were consumed by her. I don't Mm -hmm. think Sarah really has a plate that's in front of her. 
I think maybe Sarah had coffee. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> and so we see her eating at the diner. She like she takes a piece of toast with her and is chowing down out on the toast outside of the diner. And was it toast? Then, I thought it was a pancake. Oh, it might have been a pancake. It was some sort of breaded item. And then later, when she's breaks in very easily, breaks into Paul's apartment. We see her, you know, take a nibble of chicken from the refrigerator. And then later when she's talking to Paul's photo, she's eating probably cereal, something out of a bowl. So Helena's eating so much in this episode, and it's it's pretty endearing, I think. I do love that she pulls out the rotisserie chicken from the fridge and just like, I don't know, for some reason it cracks me up that she pops the top off and just like tosses the, the lid on the counter. Like, won't be needing that. Because <laughs> this chicken is going to be gonzo in about two minutes, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, we get the weird kind of vaguely stalkery sequence of Helena going everywhere in that apartment and smelling everything and touching everything. And and it's weird because it is stalkery, but at the same time, it's very childlike. Especially the way that she kind of bounces on the bed. And then she gets off the bed and tries to smooth the blankets where she's been bouncing on the bed. It's it's very endearing. And then I also love, of course, the conversation between herself and the picture of Paul where she talks about, you know, I too had a pleasant day. I went working and shopping. <laughs> Hello, Paul. How was your day? <laughs> oh, Helena. Creepy and endearing. Nobody does creepy and endearing like Helena. It's true. And then, of course, we also get the fantastically weird scene of Helena dancing with Olivier's tail as if it were a glow stick. And it's pretty fantastic. I, I've got to confess here, when this aired on BBC America as they were airing, by this point in the series, I had started DVRing them so I could watch them again before the next episode. Like I'd watch them at least twice in the week that they aired. And so I I kept rewinding that sequence of Helena dancing with the tail. I was vaguely obsessed with it mm -hmm. because it it's fantastic. It's so weird and kind of creepy and and I was super into it. <laughs> I know I, I like that that's the way Helena dances. It it makes sense that that would be how Helena would dance. I thought I thought Tatiana Maslany did a good job dancing as Helena. But it's one of those things, like, when you first see it, you're kind of like, that wasn't what I was expecting, but it totally works. Well, it makes sense to me because of her religious background. There's, if she, if the Prolethean religion is in any way sort of ecstatic and encourages, like, movement during worship, if, if people, you know, are possessed by the Holy Spirit and start speaking in tongues, that sort of movement is what I associate with that type of Christianity. So it works for me on that level. Hmm. My brain had not gone there. Hmm. But now that you mention it, I can see it. So I think we also see a big jump in the relationship between Sarah and Mrs. S in this episode. And I, I, what really struck me on upon this viewing is that when Mrs. S is talking to Sarah about what she can remember of Sarah's past, of, of what she can tell her of Sarah's past, they're sharing a glass of whiskey. And while we've seen them drink tea together before, this moment of, of Mrs. S offering Sarah some whiskey, it really seems like they're finally equals to me in this episode. Because we'd seen Mrs. S be so wary of Sarah's behavior in the past and 
and, and things like that. It, it seems unlikely that prior to this point, she would offer her alcohol, but to see her make this gesture, it just seems like, oh, they're finally like adults on the same level now. Yeah, it is a very sort of grown up thing to do. So this is where we finally get the origin of the title of this series, where where Mrs. S is talking about how Sarah was an orphan in the black. She was kind of smuggled in and needed to be hid for some reason. She says that she doesn't know why, but obviously by the by the end of the season, we have a sense that Mrs. S did have a sense why Sarah needed to be needed to be hidden. But we see her show Sarah the scrapbook from from Brixton, and. She mentions about the political unrest. And, and during this time, it, it was, there was actually in the early 1980s, there were two big riots in Brixton in 1981 and then again in 1985 that were motivated by a lot of political unrest caused by high unemployment and perceived racism, uh, institutionalized racism amongst the police toward the community in Brixton was largely Afro-Caribbean. And so there was a lot of, of tension there. And I think this tells us a lot about Mrs. S and her background and who she is as a person. Mm-hmm. But incidentally, in doing some research for this episode, the 1985 Brixton riot, which I believe is what Mrs. S is, is referencing in this episode, given that Sarah was born in 1984. The 1985 riot was incited by a police shooting of, of, a woman, the mother of, of a suspect in a, I think it was a, a guns charge was shot by police. And only recently, like uh, we're, we're recording this on March 25th, 2014 on March 22nd, just about three days ago, the police finally apologized for that shooting that started the riots back in 1985. That's just crazy to me. I mean, you know, the 29 year later apology. Mm-hmm. I mean, better than nothing, obviously, but. Right. Yeah. It happens a lot. I can't remember exactly, but it took much longer than that for the U.S. government to apologize for putting the Japanese in internment camps in World War II. So. Right. And that's, that's an even bigger, you know, kind of, oops. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I thought that was interesting that they'd only recently apologized for that shooting. Yeah. And yeah, uh, back to the whole, you know, orphan in the black thing. I cannot tell you, I've had at least a couple conversations of trying to explain the show to somebody and they're like, it's called what now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Orphan Black. And now, what does that mean? <laughs> and so there's, yeah, the whole, of course they wait until episode seven to explain it, but. Because mm-hmm. yeah, you're kind of sitting there and you're waiting. How does, what does it have to do with cloning or what have you? And it doesn't really seem to. It's just the idea that this was a child who did not come through this arm of social services in entirely legal ways she was being hidden from her parents or from somebody for for various reasons yes or or if you're like me and trying to explain this to somebody who hasn't even heard of the show they're like no no what it, what's it called black orphan <laughs> it's a, it's a, is it about black orphans <laughs> no <laughs> no it's not <laughs> yes that actually happened <laughs> True story. i can believe it mm-hmm. i can believe it and so the the scene with Sarah and Mrs. S, of course, ends in this really nice hug between the two of them. And we had mentioned previously there's there's a moment, I think it was in the last episode, no, episode before last, where where Sarah puts her hand on on Mrs. S's hand and Mrs. S sort of regards it with suspicion. But with this hug, it's a really nice, genuine 
hug between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that moment so much. And you can kind of tell that it's maybe not something that happens often or possibly ever, but you can tell that it actually does mean something to them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I suppose, but... And I kind of wonder if this situation has given Sarah a better appreciation for Mrs. S because I, she's feeling more and more protective of Kira and really feeling like Kira is being threatened by an outside force, given what's going on with the with the whole clone experiment situation. And so when we hear Mrs. S explaining to Sarah, you know, Carlton told me to before he was arrested, told me to hide you even deeper. And that's why I left everything and I brought you and Felix to Toronto. I wonder if if that situation is allowing Sarah to really appreciate how much Mrs. S must have cared about her to do that for her. I'm sure it is. And as we've talked about many, many times, really, the first season is about Sarah really learning to be protective of other people. I mean, it's not just Kira, it's the other clones, too. And and Felix, of course. I mean, always Felix has been always in that Felix. group. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see it in this episode with Paul, too, that really it is about Sarah growing up and learning to sort of stand for something. and it, Or in this case, you know, various people. Yeah, Mrs. S made the crack earlier in the season that Sarah took all of the attitude from punk rock, but none of the politics. And perhaps we're seeing Sarah getting some of the politics not maybe to a, to the quite the literal extent that Mrs. S was involved in politics but she's starting to understand what kind of like the passion and what people care about when they you know in punk rock and they're talking about these things she's getting a sense of that more than just this you know hell with the institution type of attitude that she'd gotten from it previously mhm shall we move on to Cassima and Delphine sounds good so yeah then we also have the scene of well first of all we see Cassima I think she's talking to Sarah and she's trying on all sorts of different dresses and none of them seems to be good enough. And then we get a knock on the door and oh, it's Delphine. And that's why. <laughs> In case you weren't sure. Yeah, Cosima likes Delphine. Cosima kind of has a crush on Delphine. Being very concerned about what she picks out to wear because they're going out to dinner. Yes, I I very much like the little shy look that Cosima throws Delphine's way after she's gone back sort of into her bedroom area to put on clothes. It's it's a very cute little, mm, I hope she likes me type of look. And the fact that she checks herself in the mirror, still not totally dressed, but she checks herself in the mirror before she goes to answer the door. Mm-hmm. Again, in case you weren't sure, Cosima <laughs> kind of likes her. And I must say, I find Delphine very charming in their conversation before Leaky shows up. They're talking about Delphine's ex-boyfriend, and Delphine calls herself the cold turkey asshole. And that really made me laugh this <laughs> this time around. I kind of forgotten she had that line, and it's very funny. Well, after Cosima has to explain what cold turkey means. Yes, but I, I, I like that Delphine calls herself a cold turkey asshole. <laughs> it's a good phrase. It is. It really is. But yeah, then we get the whole, you know, of course, Leaky has to intrude on the cute, charming dinner that they're having. Yeah, it's it's always really interesting to me to see how Cosima broaches that, 
because I think she wants Leaky to come over because she has a sense now that he's probably the one in charge of the clone experiment. But at the same time, she looks very annoyed, like, ah, I was on a date, dang it. <laughs> it's like, I should do this, I should talk to this guy, but I was on a date. And we were both being so charming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the whole comment about, uh, you know, you're single now, you could, you could date Leaky, which of course seems sort of odd, given the, well, given the ending of the episode prior. Yeah, it it seems like her testing Delphine a little bit to see if she might be interested or I don't know. It It, it is kind of a, an interesting comment, though. Because she has a look when she says it. She definitely has a look. Oh, yes. Kasima always has a look in this episode. <laughs> so once Linky joins them, they start talking about the different types of stem cells or the different types of research that the Diet Institute is doing. And they mention a couple. Linky mentions that they've come up with a line of pluripotent stem cells from baby teeth. And pluripotent cells, that that means they're cells that can differentiate into different types of cells. They could be, you know, a hand or a foot or what have you. And, and pluripotent cells are very important in sort of regenerative research into regenerative therapies. And then Kasima also mentions that they've developed a line of transgenic embryonic stem cells and and chris actually has a better sense of what transgenic means because she's seen dark angel <laughs> i did get very nerdy as we were prepping for this episode and it was like oh pluripotent and transgenic i have at least a vague sense of what those are because i watched dark angel 10 years ago <laughs> 12 years ago but anyway yes transgenic basically means that it's it's genetic material that's that comes from different sources so yeah, it's it's where genetic material from some other organism has been inserted into the genetic material of this other organism. Yes, which of course is yeah. sort of what we're seeing with cloning, which we talked about a little bit with Sally in our clone science episode, which is episode 17. Right. And then their conversation ultimately leads to this very sly exchange between Leaky and Kasima, which... I didn't fully appreciate on first viewing, but have subsequently really appreciated how confrontational it's beyond cheeky. It's a very confrontational exchange between Leaky and Kasima, where Leaky makes the comment that one day Kasima could be on the on the cover of Scientific American. And Kasima leans in and says, They don't put scientists on the cover of Scientific American. And it's this moment of Kasima being like I could be on the cover because I'm a science experiment. Yes. And of course, that may very well be what Leaky really meant. So, of course, there's this whole, you know, it's a scene with layers. Mm-hmm, definitely. And and again, I didn't pick that up on the first viewing, but the second viewing was like, oh, she's totally, that's totally a a reference to I, you know, you know that I am not... You know, you know that I am a clone or, t- or t- that type of thing. It's a very slyly confrontational scene between the two of them. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to acknowledge that I know without saying that I know. So so I've got plausible deniability. But, you know, once once Delphine and Kasima have gone back to Kasima's place, Kasima seems to go back to plan A, which was seduce the monitor. <laughs> why is that plan a <laughs> oh right because of the hair yes 
and the grades. The hair and the grades. <laughs> and I have to admit, Delphine is not being the greatest monitor in this scene because Kazima makes some comment about, you know, let's admit what this is really about. And Delphine looks very nervous when, when Kazima says that. Well, I mean, okay, because here's the thing. <laughs> Delphine isn't a monitor in the sense that Paul is a monitor, you know? I think we talked about this a little bit last episode, didn't we? That Delphine's a scientist. So theoretically, Delphine's in it for the science, not for the spying. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it kind of makes sense to me that, that Delphine would be like, wait, what? <laughs> when Kazima says that. Yeah. No, for sure. Delphine is not, is not the same grade of monitor of, as Paul or even Donnie. She's, she's very much the scientist who's sort of been sent in because she was probably the best choice in that moment. But uh, she looks very cutely nervous when Cosima makes that comment. Indeed. Of course, Delphine needn't have worried because Cosima's really talking about making out. Yes. <laughs> Again, Cosima's back to plan A, seduce the monitor. <laughs> <laughs> and they share kind of a awkward kiss because, well, I guess the kiss isn't totally awkward, but Delphine is, is clearly quite surprised that that's what was, was coming after that comment. Indeed. So we didn't have anything from, from Art and company in the, in the last episode, and we, we have a return of, of Art, and we check in with him and see how they're doing in regards to their investigation into Katya's death. And so we get a sense of they're catching up to some of the weirdness that's going on, matching Helena's blood in the bathroom to Katya's blood, matching Katya's fingerprints to Sarah's fingerprints. But I think what I most appreciate of the the scenes that we get with with Art and the police folk is I really like the scene we get with Janice Beckwith, where the the lieutenant, the captain, their their commanding officer, is giving her a hard time about you know where's my facial reconstruction, and I just love the way she says her face went through a freaking gravel crusher. It just makes me really like her for some reason. Me too. It is one of the great moments that happens in the police station. In my opinion. And I just like how so defensive she is of her work. Like, there's no way that things got contaminated in my lab. I would not allow that. This crazy theory that you've come up with, that is more possible than things getting contaminated in my lab. I take my job very seriously. And I believe her. I do, too. I do, too. I And Angie, we have, you know, a couple of women in the police force who are really into their jobs. And I, and I very much appreciate that because we see how much Angie enjoys the morgue in this episode, which is quite in, endearing. Angie, you delightful weirdo. Because <laughs> it's a finger straightener. <laughs> have you ever seen a postmortem spasm? <laughs> uh, but we also in this episode get, I think, the first sense that Angie is suspicious of Beth mm -hmm. or, you know, quote unquote Beth. Because it, it was kind of interesting to me watching it again, since we talked about how later in the series, Sarah says something to her about, you know, well, you know, isn't that what you always wanted me off the police force? And every time I'm kind of like, well, where is that coming from? And I think the only indication we ever get of it is this scene <laughs> where Angie's sort of casting doubt on Beth. But, mm -hmm. like, Sarah's not there for it. So right. So why does Sarah think that? I'm still confused about it. But that's yeah. besides the point. Yeah, I don't quite understand that that either. But I, we do definitely get a sense that 
Angie did not trust Beth. And and maybe that's just because of of Sarah being such a flaky police officer. I, I love the you know I love the reference to it's like Beth had never done paperwork before <laughs> with her looking yes. through her files, and it's like well because she hadn't. Um. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah, definitely getting a sense of of Angie not being a big fan of Beth in this episode. Mm-hmm. We also get in this episode where Felix calls Art like he was instructed to do by Sarah in case she didn't make it out of the club in this period of time. But, you know, she shows up last minute and Felix hangs up on Art. And in that moment, I always think, Felix, why did you not call from a public phone or something? I, I granted he was out in the middle of nowhere and probably didn't have a good choice, but I feel like he should have thought that through a little better. Yes, back to the, the investigation aspect that at the end of the episode, we finally see that the, or we see that the police finally have followed the evidence trail to Sarah, which of course is kind of interesting because they get to Sarah by matching Helena's blood to Katya's. And then they take Katya's fingerprints with the finger straightener. They take her fingerprints, but those match up to Sarah's fingerprints. So, you know, the clone thing is handy, but it's also kind of a pain in the behind. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah, because we've had – it's three different clones that are involved in this little trail. Though we've talked before about how it's it's actually rather unlikely that Katya's fingerprints would have led to them finding Sarah. So that's a bit of a suspension of disbelief that we have to go on with the show. But we're willing. We're willing. We are. Show you're so good, we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> we're still going to talk about it, but we're okay with it. Yes. <laughs> so just, just a couple of stray thoughts – when Paul it runs into Felix outside the club and and you know attacks him and then tells Sarah to meet him at the the townhouse and not bring Felix, I'm like, what the hell, Paul? Who doesn't like Felix? <laughs> People who are super cagey and also maybe uh, slightly be being put off by being you know offered a blowjob from a stranger. Y- yeah, possibly. <laughs> It's like, uh, there's a distraction I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I, I don't know, did, I can't remember. I don't feel like Felix and Paul ever get to be on great terms in this season. Maybe they'll get to be on better terms next season. But they, they never really seem to gel quite in this, this season. I suspect they're suspicious of each other. Yeah, which is fair. Mm-hmm. We also have an exchange between Sarah and Paul that's, you know, definitely a big continuation of the identity theme where Paul says to her, there's nine of you. And Sarah replies, no, there's one of me, just like there was one of Beth. So, again, this puzzling out this idea of of, of individuality, even amongst genetic identicals, you know, Sarah's very adverse to the idea of Paul suggesting that there are nine versions of her out there. And of course, I mean, from Sarah's perspective, I totally get it because she's been spending time with these other other genetic identicals and yeah, they're nothing like her. Well, no, they're all very say, different people. I shouldn't say nothing like her because as we've talked about before, there are certain similarities, especially between Sarah and Cosima, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And again, we have a very clear repeat clones repeating each other, like similar actions with the with the hanging up of the phone and, and calling each other bitch in this episode. And that that basic attitude of, you know, whatever it is you say I should do, I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. 
mm-hmm. because as frustrated as Sarah is with Kasima doing that, don't you kind of feel like Sarah is the same way? <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, as we've talked about, the whole thing where, you know, Felix always tells her not to answer the phone and she always answers the phone anyway, you know, it's just, it's just the way they are. Yeah. And if you think of Sarah, Sarah's relationships with clones kind of being like siblings, Sarah's used to being the older sibling and Felix does what she tells him to do most of the time. Like he's fairly compliant and, and they don't tend to get into a lot of, a lot of arguments. So it would make sense to me that she would expect Kasima to sort of follow her lead and be frustrated when she didn't. Kasima does kind of seem like the uh, rebellious younger sister, doesn't she? She does. She does. <laughs> I think technically Kasima might be older, but... Yeah, I think Kasima, from what we saw of the birth certificates, actually has the earliest birth date. But, but uh, yeah, she definitely acts like the younger rebellious sister. Right, but I think it's one of those things, I think from what we know, they're all only children, Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think the fact that Sarah is the older sibling in her sibling relationship informs a lot of the other relationships. Me too. I also thought it was interesting that we hear both Tomas and Olivier refer to Sarah as the imposter in this episode. I, I thought it was interesting that they chose the same same word. Mm-hmm. Again, sort of subtly drawing parallels between the organizations. Mm-hmm, definitely. Even though they stand for opposite philosophies or opposing philosophies. So let us know your thoughts on parts developed in an unusual manner. We would we would love to hear your ideas about the episode. You can do that in a variety of ways. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at TatianaIsEveryone.com. You can also send us an email to feedback at TatianaIsEveryone.com, or you can send us a voice message by clicking on the Send Voicemail tab at the right side of the website. You can also follow us on Twitter at TIE Podcast. And if you have an iTunes account, we would appreciate it if you would leave us a review there. Yes, you can be honest. We're not trying to say you have to leave us a five-star review, but we would just love to get some reviews in iTunes. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating or review, we'd really appreciate it. And this week, both Olivier's Tale and The Cold Turkey Asshole were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. <laughs>